If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 12. Now last week we did a little background study leading up to the time when Abraham was given the Abrahamic covenant. Now this week and next week we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham. Now God had appeared to Abram in the city of Ur right in the midst of all the pagan idol worship. And he told him to go to a land that he was going to show him. Now, instead of Abram moving away from his family, however, he and his brother and their wives and his father and his nephew all go as far as Haran and they stay there until Terah the father dies. And then we find God appearing to Abraham again. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, starting with verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, go from your relatives, from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I'm going to bless those that bless you. Those who curse you will be cursed. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all of the possessions which they had accumulated, and all the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now it appears that uh, Abram was disobedient because instead of leaving all of his relatives, he takes Lot with him. Now, it also tells us here that uh, he took with him all the possessions that he had accumulated and all the people that they had acquired in Haran. Now, more than likely, this was the inheritance that he had received from his father when his father died because they would, they would leave an inheritance. So he evidently uh, acquired a lot of, of people and a lot of possessions. So he, he goes into the promised land already full. You know, God's already blessed him. And in verse 6, Abram passed through the land as far as Shechem. And we find that in verse 7 that God appeared to him and said to your descendants, I'm going to give this land. So he builds an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then we find in verse 8 that he uh, proceeds from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel. And he builds another altar there. And then in verse 9, he journeys on continuing toward the Negev. Okay, now when Abram comes into the promised land, he comes in from the north. And basically he passes through the land of Canaan. It's almost like he makes three journeys. Now the first journey, he goes to Shechem and builds an altar. Then in verse 8, it tells us that he takes a second journey goes to Bethel, brings another, builds another altar, and then the third journey, he goes all the way down to the south, down near the Dead Sea. Now, we wouldn't pay much attention to these places that he visited. They wouldn't mean that much, except years later, when his grandson Jacob returns home after he's run away from home to keep from being killed by his brother Esau, we find that he comes back and he goes to these exact same three places. When he comes into the land, he goes first to Shechem, and he erects an altar. And, and then next he goes to Bethel and erects another altar, and then he goes down to the southern part of Israel, down to the Negev. Now, I don't think it was any coincidence that Jacob literally follows in the steps of his grandfather Abraham when that spiritual mantle comes upon him. When he comes back into the land, he receives a, that mantle from God. He's going to be... 
the one to carry on in Abraham's footsteps. And he goes to all these places. Now, um, he, he wasn't even alive when Abraham made this original journey. And so it, it's almost as though God is leading him in the same direction. Now, we don't know what Abraham might have been expecting when God sent him into the promised land. But if he went into the promised land expecting that all of his problems were going to be over with, he was disappointed because he had been separated from his family. Now, obviously, he, he was really close to his family. He was close to his brother and, and, and to his father and so close to Lot that he took him with him. And he's been separated now from his family. His wife is barren and she uh, ha can't have any children. And so I'm sure that was a disappointment. And he gets into the land and, and she still can't have any children. And then at, as soon as he gets into the land, a famine comes on the land so severe that he feels like he is forced to go into Egypt just to stay alive. Now I'm sure that this was a puzzle. You know, God has told him to go into this land and I'm going to bless you. And he goes into the land and I'm sure he's thinking, Lord, you know, did I miss you? Here I am in the land and it looks like we're going to starve to death. See, just because a person is following God doesn't mean that he's never going to face a challenge. And so Abraham had some challenges just as soon as he got into the promised land. And so in verse 10... The famine was in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was very severe in the land. So evidently, it, it, it was a famine that, you know, people were moving, getting away, because they, they, couldn't, uh, they knew they couldn't stay alive there. And in verse 11, it came about that when he came near to Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife and they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Now we think of Abraham as being this great man of faith, you know. He's just been entrusted with the privilege now of receiving the, the covenant with God and uh, he, the entire earth is going to be blessed through his family. Therefore, it's kind of hard to believe that in the same chapter where he's received this promise from God, and right after he's received it, you know, it's amazing that he's so fearful that this Egyptian king is going to take his life so that he can have his wife, that he gets her to pose as his sister. Now, he obviously doesn't fully understand the covenant, or maybe, you know, maybe he just doesn't have faith in the covenant yet. Because if he had understood his covenant, he would know that he couldn't die. He would have known that. See, God had promised that descendants were going to come forth from him, and they were going to become this great nation. Well, see, if he had really believed that at this time, then he would have known, hey, it doesn't matter. They can't kill me. There, there's no way they can kill me. But... Uh, it encourages me to realize that Abraham didn't start out by being this great man of faith. You know, when all of a sudden I see myself wavering in some different things, I, I look back and I think, Lord, Abraham didn't start out with great faith either, but he kept moving in that direction. He kept, kept taking steps of obedience until God had developed his faith. And that's what I'm wanting us to, to really see tonight. I'm wanting us to see that no matter where we are in our walk with God, if we'll keep taking the steps of obedience then and, and keep putting that word inside of us, God's going to develop our faith just exactly like he did Abraham.
Now, basically, all he really understood about his covenant at this point was just the first commandment to go. He knew that God told him to go. And so he took that step of obedience. He got up and he followed God. Now, at least he put forth that obedience. He gave God something to work with. You know, sometimes uh, we give God nothing to work with. You know, we're not, uh, you know, God tells us something and we just sit there and we don't do anything and God doesn't have anything to work with. Uh, the moment that we know something that God wants in our life, if we'll just get up and take that first step, then God's going to lead us into the next step and the next step. Now, he had taken this first step of obedience, but it was going to be years after that before he fully realizes that it was indeed going to be in his seed and in Sarah's seed that the entire earth would be blessed and that this nation would be birthed. Now, when Abraham uh, didn't walk in all the promises of the covenant, when he did what he did there in Egypt, he was not only jeopardizing the covenant, but he also put his wife, Sarai, in, very, in a very dangerous position. And Pharaoh did take her into uh, his household. Now, think about that. It appears that Abraham was willing to give up Sarai forever in order to save his life. Because how on earth did he think he was ever going to get her back after she went in Pharaoh's court? You know, there wasn't any way for him to later go back and say, hey, I was kidding. She's really my wife, you know. So... When he allows her to go into Pharaoh's court, he's turning loose of her forever, you know, in his mind. Well, praise God, God intervened, and he does eventually get his wife back, but it's a bad ordeal before it's over. And in verse 18, Pharaoh was furious. He called Abraham and he said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your sister? Why did you say, uh, why did you say, I mean, why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? So Pharaoh took her as his wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. I mean, he just wanted Abraham out of there. He wanted him. And so Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. So he didn't wait for Abraham to get up and leave on his own. He sent an escort and took him out of Egypt. Now, I'm sure that Abraham's face was red, you know. Uh, think of all the trouble that he caused there in the, in the courts of Pharaoh. But, you know, more than that, I want you to think about this. How on earth would he have been able to face Sarai after that? You know, I just can't imagine having Sarai come back and have to face her and say, oh, you know, I can't believe uh, what happened. And I, I can't even imagine how he was able to face his wife. But you know, have you ever pulled a really bad boner and you felt like, I'm never going to do that again. I was so embarrassed. I will never, ever pull that again. I think we've all done that. But apart from a real heart change, we will do the same things over again. And we find that Abraham at this point had not had a heart change. And we find that because that heart change hasn't come, we find that the selfishness was still there, the fear was still there, and we find him going around that exact same mountain again. I want you to put a marker here and go to Genesis 20. Genesis chapter 20, starting with verse 1. I don't know exactly how much time had passed. A good deal of time has passed. And Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, 
down in the southern part, and he settled between Kadesh and Shur, and then he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she uh, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, because she's married. Now, it's hard to believe that Abraham could have pulled that same lack of trust again after that embarrassing situation in the courts of Pharaoh. It's hard to believe he could have done that. But see, his faith has still not progressed to the point that he's understanding that it is indeed the actual fruit from his womb and Sarah's womb that's going to bless the whole earth. He's not understanding that yet. If he had understood that, then there would have been no fear. Now in verse 4, Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, wilt thou slay a nation even though blameless? Did he himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then the Lord said to King Abimelech in a dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you've done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Okay, now we find that there's a lot more integrity here in King Abimelech, this pagan king, than we find in Abraham at this point. But thank goodness, God intervenes, and now uh, we find that uh, God is going to reveal to him that Sarah is indeed chosen by God to be the mother of the covenant. And I, I think, you know, Lord, how grateful I am that you do intervene in our arenas and, 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 and especially here and safeguarded that promise. Okay, now one of the most beautiful lessons in Scripture that many times we fail to see is, is the faith of Sarah. You know, we talk about the faith of Abraham and we talk about uh, the steps of obedience that Abraham took. But, you know, we need to stop and see the faith of Sarah to be able to forgive Abraham to continue to have respect for him, even when she sees him in this fear and this insecurity, putting her life in jeopardy. She's, she's able to see through all those insecurities, and she's able to still have faith, but she's also able to have honor for her husband. She still honors her husband and respects her husband. Now, Sarai is a godly example for us women, you know, in a lot of ways. And, but I want us to see how this curse passed down to his son. Okay, if you'll turn to Genesis 26, verse 1. Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. We see exactly the same thing happening in his son Isaac's life. Now in verse 1 it says, Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now more than likely this is uh, the son of the king that had been on the throne when, uh, when Abraham passed Sarah off as his sister. And so if you'll look down in verse 7, when the men of the place ask about his wife, Isaac said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she's beautiful. And it came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through, out through the window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she's my sister? 
And Isaac said to him, because I, uh, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought all this guilt on us. You know, it's uncanny how things get passed down unless we allow God to, uh, uh, to take these things and clean them up in our lives. Now, God's mercy intervenes again and Rebecca's spared. But I want us to make two observations from these three parallel stories in the, in the life of Abraham and his son Isaac. Number one, I think it's interesting how our failures, our shortcomings, our sins, when they're not adequately dealt with, they will tend to show up in, in the lives of our children. Now, if for no other reason than that, it's worth any effort that it takes to allow God to deliver us from those iniquities, to get those things out of our life, you know, to repent and, and allow God to deliver us so that that thing is broken. And if we don't do that, it becomes a negative inheritance that we pass down to our children. Now, it's amazing how fast even attitudes, you know, sometimes it's not just some uh, overt sin. Sometimes it's just the attitude of the heart that's adopted by the children without our even realizing it. You know, a lot of people will have prejudices or maybe they'll be in bitterness or, or have rejection or fears or, you know, you know, you could just name on and on and on. And it's very important for us to take care of these negative attitudes. Or we'll find later seeing these very same things uh, coming up in our children. And then number two, I want us to see that these shortcomings were planned schemes from the enemy. And they were sent for a deadly purpose. Now in these two near tragic mistakes in, in Abram's life, it was Satan's plan to corrupt Sarah and mess up the plan of God and keep the, the seed from being able to come forth. And anytime we have uh, an assignment against us, don't think that it's happen chance. Don't think that it's just a coincidence. It is a plan of destruction to keep some area of promise or, or some area of blessing from manifesting. And you know, when we realize that uh, this assignment is to keep me from something that God has in store for me, it's going to make us want to get this cleaned up. So just begin to take note. If you find yourself falling in the same area over and over, realize that there's a blessing out there and Satan's trying to hold it back. He's trying to keep you from that blessing. Now, I want you to go back to Genesis 13. And I want us now to go on with Abraham's life. But I wanted to point that out because I thought it was so important for us to learn from, from that mistake in, in Abraham's life. But in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, So Abram went up from Egypt uh, to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Okay, now this is immediately now after he tried to pass Sarah off as his sister the first time when he was in Egypt. And so in verse 2, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Okay, Abraham, Abram is the first recorded rich man in the Word of God. Now some people get the idea from the story of the rich young ruler that Jesus was saying that we can't have possessions and ever be pleasing to God. But that's not what Jesus was saying. It's not the having of riches now that corrupts. It's what place of priority we, get, we give to the riches. Now, Abraham's the first recorded rich man in the Word of God, and God is the one who made him rich. And he says that later. He acknowledges that his riches have come from God. But God's getting ready now to prove Abram's unselfishness. 
God's bringing him uh, in his faith to the point that he's going to uh, get this unselfishness out of him. And he's getting ready to prove now that Abraham's riches have not corrupted him. He's getting ready to prove that Abraham is willing to lay those riches down uh, in preference to God's will. He's showing that there's not any greed there. Now, when the rich young ruler was asked to lay his riches down, he couldn't do it because those riches possessed him. But Abraham, it was fine. You know, if, uh, if he had to give up part of his wealth, you know, it didn't bother him at all. And so we find in verses 5 through 11 that Abraham and Lot's possessions now and their livestock are growing to such an extent that the herdsmen are quarreling. Now, it's not Abraham quarreling with Lot, but the herdsmen are quarreling. They want uh, the, the best land and they want the water and they want the grass for their own herd, uh, for their master's herd. And so that upset Abraham. He didn't want to have sin in the camp. So we find in verse 9 that he gives Lot a choice. And he tells him, you pick whichever direction you want to go and you take your possessions and you go there. And whichever way you go, I'll go in the opposite direction. I'll take my herds and I'll take my uh, servants and I'll go the other way. And so in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw all the valley of the Jordan that it was well watered everywhere. Okay, now I want you to notice that the Bible says that Lot looked up and he saw. Okay, Make a note in the margin there because God always sees from a different perspective than man sees. See, in, uh, there's another scripture I want you to mark later, but in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, it tells us that God does not see as man sees. That man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Now, Lot saw only the well-watered valley, and uh, Lot saw the city of Sodom. And, and he saw that uh, there was wickedness and sin going on continually. Now, Lot's failure to discern and oppose this evil and decide not to go there, his, his failure to discern that brought death and brought tragedy to him. Now, during the foundation series, if you'll remember, we had one whole session on learning how to see from God's perspective. And that is so very important. It's vital, especially in these end days, for us to learn how to see things through God's perspective. If we continue to see just as man sees, if we look at it like the world looks at things, then you know, we're, we're never going to have life and life abundantly. And the, one of the most important prayers that we can pray is to say, Lord, I want to be able to see through your eyes. I want to have your perspective on things. When I look at things, I don't want to see things it, as they are in the natural. But Lord, I want to see it through your eyes. I want to see what you're, what you're saying. Now, there's a lot of, of sermons on unselfishness that, has, that have been taught from this particular uh, uh, episode in the life of Abraham. But if we just see it as a discipline, then we've missed the whole clue here because I want you to notice the spirit in these two men. They have different spirits. You know, a, a selfish spirit is always going to draw a person into wickedness. It always will. And an unselfish spirit now will always draw a person into the blessings of God. And you can find that every single time. Selfishness will always draw us toward sin, toward people who sin. But unselfishness will eventually draw us into God's blessings. 
And we see this graphically now in the life of Abraham and in the life of Lot. These, these are perfect examples. Now, Abraham was able to yield to Lot's selfish choice because he wasn't looking to Lot or he wasn't looking to that piece of land that Lot wanted as his source. That wasn't Abraham's source. He was looking to God to give him the inheritance that God had promised. And Lot didn't know how to trust God. He hadn't come to that place. Now, lack of trust will always cause a person to be self-seeking and self-reliant. Anytime there's a lack of trust in our life, we're going to be grasping because we're not trusting that God's going to bless us, so we've got to get out there and bless ourselves. We've got to uh, grasp and, and uh, seek things for on our own. And that's what Lot was doing. And his character is revealed by the choices that he made. Now, he took the best share of the land, even though it meant having to move uh, near Sodom. And he knew that, that Sodom was a, a wicked city. It was known for its sin. And he's greedy, but he wanted the best for himself. Now, we're going to find that life is just a series of choices. And we, too, can selfishly take what we want you know, while ignoring the needs and, and maybe even the feelings of others. But just like we see in the life of Lot, we're going to find that when we make those selfish choices, it will always lead to sorrow. Okay, I want you to look in Genesis 13, uh, verse 12. It says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. Okay, I'm going to give you a little clue here. When someone is drawn toward wickedness, then there's a selfish spirit involved. And they're drawn toward those who, uh, uh, who sin against the Lord continually. And when that happens, you can always know there's a need for God. And, and more of God is the answer that's going to fix that problem. But nothing else will fix that problem. You know, any time that uh, someone is drawn toward that wickedness, well, the only thing that's going to turn their life around is to receive more of God. And that's what Lot was needing. Okay, in verse 14, it says, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now, he told Abraham, lift up your eyes, and I want you to look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. So Abraham now is going to look through God's eyes. He's going to look from God's perspective. And God told him, all the land which you see, I'm going to give it to you and to your descendants forever. Okay, Abraham had given up the good land, but anytime we give up something in preference to the Lord, God's always going to bless us back in time. Now, not that it should be the motive of our heart just to give something up so we'll get it back. But it is a, a spiritual principle. It's a spiritual law and it does work. And we find that Jesus restated that same spiritual law in Mark 10 verse 29 when he said anyone who leaves his houses and homes and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters for the sake of the gospel will receive back a hundredfold in this life and also life eternal. So it is a principle, and Abraham was operating in this spiritual principle, and it worked for him. He gave up the good lot, the good land to Lot, and God gave every bit of it back to him right here in verse 14. Okay, now this brings us to chapter 14, and this is one of the most interesting stories in the life of Abraham. It's one of the most interesting stories in the Bible, really. In verse 1 through 4, it tells us that the kings of Sodom and the kings of Gomorrah, those were the wicked cities now, 
in the southern part of Israel, down near the Dead Sea, had been 12 years in bondage to King Chadalatimer, who was the king of Babylon. And even though uh, this king of Babylon lived thousands of miles away, he still was in control over them, and they had to pay heavy taxes. Now, in the 13th year, they got tired of it, so they decided that they were going to rebel. And then in verse 1, we find that these four very famous uh, Babylonian kings, you might mark out by verse 1, that these are famous Babylonian kings in that day and time. And they finally, in the 14th year, they decide that they're going to retaliate. They're going to come back. Now we find in the last part of verse 9 that there are four kings against five kings. And uh, they come down from Babylon and they defeat Sodom and Gomorrah. Now in chapter 14, verse 11, then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, all of their food supply, and they departed. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Uh, then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew, uh, now he was living by the Oaks of Memory, and he came and uh, told him what had happened. And in verse 14, when Abram heard this, that his relative had been captured, he led out his trained men born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Okay, now this was no small battle. And Abraham's really not a warrior. And he took only 318 servants from his household to go against four kings and all of their armies. Now, I'm going to give you a little side note here before we go on, though. Uh, even though this, this was very few people to take uh, when he's going to fight uh, a battle of that magnitude, I still uh, can't even imagine having that many servants. Think about that. This was 318 trained servants. Okay, if this was just the trained servants, think how many more servants he left at home taking care of the household. Um, I thought about that. How many of us today have one full-time servant, <laughs> you know? And here he has 318 trained servants plus all the rest that were home. And as I was reading some of the statistics, they say that he probably had at least 1,000 people working for him. So Abraham takes off, and he has a late start. Now, he, had, he, he couldn't leave until he heard about the fate of, uh, of Lot, and when he hears that, uh, he realizes they've already been captured. They're already headed toward the border. They've already gotten as far as, uh, uh, you know, up, way up getting close to the northern border. And Abraham's going to have to round up his servants. He's going to have to prepare food. He's going to have to get supplies. You know, I can't even imagine uh, if he had a thousand servants. I can't even imagine being able to feed a thousand people every day. You know, that took a lot of food, you know, and clothing just to take care of that many. But he gets a late start, but even with that late start, he's able to overtake them before they leave the promised land. He's able to overtake them in the very northern boundary of the country. Now, evidently, God had given him a battle plan because we find in verse 15 that it says he divided the forces against them by night. And he defeated them so severely that he was able to bring back all of the goods. 
He was able to bring back Lot, all of his possessions, and he was able to bring back all the people and everything that had been taken. So evidently, he must have really <laughs> defeated them well. Now, it makes Abraham look like a military genius, but he's no warrior really by nature, so we know that God intervened. Now that helped me to understand a scripture that I've read so many times in Hebrews 11 verse 33, but that's the, uh, the chapter that tells us about the great men of faith. And there's a scripture there in verse 33 that talks about the patriarchs of old that conquered kingdoms. And I thought, you know, Abraham was a patriarch and he literally conquered kingdoms. And that scripture goes on to tell us how they conquered the kingdoms. Do you remember how they conquered the kingdoms? by faith. And, and it makes it very clear that these patriarchs of old conquered kingdoms by faith. And so we're definitely seeing now Abraham's faith progressing as time goes on. You know, he's willing to get up and, and go and fight this battle because he loves his nephew. And, and God blesses him, gives him the victory. Now this is the first recorded battle in the Bible. And according to biblical scholars, this battle feet was equal to the battle that Gideon fought. You know, we hear a lot about the battle of Jericho and, and we hear about Gideon's army, but Abraham's victory here should have equal billing because he has 318 servants against four kingdoms and possibly thousands of men. Okay, now something that I want to pat, uh, point out that I think is significant, even though Abraham was not a warrior, I want you to notice that he was prepared he had trained his men in case of potential conflict. Now, Abram could have said, well, Lot got himself in this mess. You know, he can get himself out. Or, or Lot could have, uh, I mean, Abraham could have just said, well, I'm just a peaceful man. I'm, I, I'm not going to worry about uh, training my people. You know, I just want to live in peace. And sometimes that's what we do. We just say, oh, I just don't want to make any ripples. I, I, I don't want to worry about spiritual warfare, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave that to someone else. But see, we can't do that. Even though Abraham was not a warrior, he still had to train his men. He still had to be ready. And we need to be skilled. We need to be trained in spiritual warfare because conflicts will arise. And God expects us to be prepared. He's given us his authority, and he doesn't expect us to just turn a deaf ear and go about our, our, our own way. He wants us to, to be trained. He wants us to be prepared. Okay, in chapter 14 then verse 17, we find then that after he returned from the defeat of Chadalatimer and, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the king's valley, but also in verse 18, we find that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, came out to meet him and brought bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the Most High God. Okay, now, in other words, he was bringing out sacraments. This is the first mention of communion when you think about it. And this is the first time that a priest is mentioned in Scripture. And um, the Levitical priesthood now has not even been birthed yet. So Melchizedek now is a priest who was ordained by God. He's not a priest just because he was, happened to be born into the priesthood. But he's a priest ordained by God. And it also says that he was the king of Salem. Now Salem was the ancient city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So it, it was the ancient city and then uh, the name was changed to Jerusalem. But in verse 19, 
Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he's reminding Abraham again. Abraham, that victory came because God delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham then turns and gives him a tenth of all. Now, this is the first mention of tithe in the Bible. Now, anything that was in effect before the law came in is still in effect today. And so we find that this is the first mention of the tithe. So the tithe was in effect before uh, uh, the laws and were given because the law was given on Mount Sinai some 500 years later. But here he's already paying tithes. So we find that Abraham, he didn't have the law written out in front of him, yet he still obeyed. Now, that tells me that he had the law written in his heart. And that's where we're to be under the new covenant. We, we don't have to always just have the law out in front of us. We need to have that law in our heart, the word of God down in our heart so much that we wouldn't think about violating the word because we know it. It's inside of us. Now, when Abraham paid these tithes, he was acknowledging Melchizedek as his superior. Okay, he recognized him as God's representative. And he didn't mind paying the tithes. See, Abraham's not a stingy man. Didn't bother him when Lot took the best land, and he was more than willing to give his tithes to God. And we're going to find that faith is always generous. You're never going to find a great man of faith who's stingy. If a person's stingy, they're never going to be a, a, a person of faith because it just it, it won't work that way. Stinginess and faith just don't go together. Now, I want you to notice that the king of Sodom also came out in the King's Valley there uh, to meet Abram. And he was very grateful to Abraham because Abraham is the one that, that saved the day. Now, even though Abraham fought the Babylonian kings only to get Lot and his possessions back, it still turned out to be a real blessing for the king of Sodom too, and he knew that because he knew that he was being taken into Babylon and he knew that he probably would have been tortured and killed. So he's grateful to Abraham. And in verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me. In other words, give me my people back, but you can take all the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abram rich. He said, I've sworn that to God. I'm not taking anything from you. He said, I'm not going to take anything except what my young men have eaten and so forth. Now, Abraham took the blessing from Melchizedek. He received the communion. He received the, uh, the blessing because he recognized Melchizedek as the uh, uh, representative of God. He knew he was a man of God. But from the king of Sodom now, Sodom represented worldliness and sinfulness, and he would take absolutely nothing. Okay, we're beginning to see now a real progression of Abraham's faith. Every time he made another step of obedience, we find his faith growing, and he's gradually becoming the man that, that God intends him to be. Now, too many times Christians compromise. They want God's blessing and they want to be blessed by the world too. And so they're trying to hang on to both worlds. They have one foot in each camp and that won't work. And we're going to have to learn to make the same distinction that Abraham made. We're going to have to be able to stand up and say, Lord, I'll take the blessing from you, but I'll not receive one thing from this world. 
I don't want anything of this world. I don't want anything that, that I would have to compromise the word of God to receive. And Abraham knew that that would be a compromise. And so we find then in chapter 15, starting with verse 1, that after these things, in other words, after all the, the, uh, the warfare there and after he refused the uh, worldly king and he received the blessing from the man of God, after these things, then the word of the Lord came to Abram again in a vision, saying, God was continually speaking to him. Every time he was faithful to God, God was right there blessing him. And so in this vision, he said, Don't fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus? In other words, that was one of the servants. And, and he said, I'm still childless, Lord. I, I don't have uh, someone uh, to uh, succeed me. So he said, what am I going to do? And Abram said, since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. So Abraham made up his own mind how he was going to make it happen. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took Abram outside and he said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. In other words, he said, As many stars as you can see, that's how many descendants you're going to have. He gave him a faith picture. And then Abram believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You need to circle that verse 6 because that's so important. That is the first definition that we have given in the Bible of righteousness. That's important. If you want to know how to be righteous, it tells us right there how. Abraham believed God, believed his word. And that was counted to him as righteousness. See, our right standing with God is entirely dependent upon faith, believing God, trusting God. If God says it, then we believe it, and that's counted as righteousness. Now, we can't win a place in heaven by our good deeds, and neither could Abram. You know, all the good deeds in the world would not have won him that place in heaven. But he believed and he trusted in God, and it was counted as righteousness. So mark this scripture in the Bible because this is the foundation now on which uh, righteousness with God is based. Okay, now in verse 7 through 10, it's very important because God is getting ready to cut covenant with Abraham. He's brought him to the place where he's ready to cut the covenant. Now God has Abram bring animals to him and he cuts them in half. Now this was evidently a typical procedure for uh, uh, you know, confirming a covenant. And in verse 11, the birds of prey come down upon the carcasses and Abram had to drive them away. Okay, now this is a type and shadow. See, God makes co made the covenant possible, but Abram had to drive the, the birds of prey away. And if we'll see that as a type and shadow, we'll realize God makes the promises. He, he, he's the one that makes the covenant. But sometimes we have to stand and keep the enemy from stealing it. And that's why God's given us his authority. And we have to take that authority and get rid of the birds of prey, get rid of all the uh, demonic activity. Now, sometimes when God has made us a promise, or maybe he's trying to make covenant with us, 
Uh, we need to ask ourselves, am I fighting off the birds of prey? Am I fighting the vultures off? Or am I just standing there and watching it be stolen from me? And sometimes, you know, God's made a promise to us and things come in and happen and all of a sudden the, the promise kind of flies away and we're saying, oh, you know, I can't believe that it didn't happen. When God was intending for us to take our authority, he was intending for us to stand up and point our finger at the enemy and say, no, you're not going to do that. You're not going to steal from me. This is a promise that God's made to me and I will not budge and you're not having it. And that's how you uh, ward off these birds of prey. Now, in Psalm 103, God tells us the benefits of our covenant. He says he forgives all of our sins. He heals our diseases. He tells us that he redeems us from destruction. He tells us that he satisfies us with a long life. He tells us that he renews our youth. And you know, uh, we need to take those benefits. You know, some of us need to realize, hey, he's going to satisfy me with a long life. We need to realize he's going to renew my youth. But I promise you there's going to be demons of fear and, and bitterness and uh, maybe even spirits of infirmity. All kinds of things will come in to try to steal those benefits away. And that's when, when we're going to have to stand up just exactly like Abraham did and we're going to have to fight off those birds of prey. And the way we fight the enemy off of our promises is number one, we have to choose to believe the promises. We have to choose to believe those promises more than we believe what we see many times in the natural. And then number two, we have to put action to our faith many times. And then number three, we have to take every negative thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Abraham believed the word. He believed God. And then he put action to that faith. He, he uh, kept uh, the, the vultures away. And then he took his thoughts captive. That's why God told him, go outside and look at the stars and you're going to be able to count how many descendants. And I can just see Abraham going out at night and counting the stars and saying, Lord, I believe you. That's how many descendants I'm going to have. And I'm sure he took thoughts captive by doing that. And then in, in, in verse 17, it says, And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. The, the pieces of the animal. They had been cut in two. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. Okay, the covenant for the whole Old Testament has finally been cut. And if you'll notice, it's an unconditional covenant because God passes through the pieces by himself. Now, Abraham's faith has progressed mightily here. And um, he, he's to the point where God could cut covenant with him. Father, thank you. I thank you, Father, that truly you have told us to walk in the steps of Abraham. And Lord, it is encouraging to realize that he didn't start off a great man of faith. And many times, Lord, we look at our lives and we just say, oh, Lord, I've just blown it so many times. But Father, help us to keep looking at the faith of Abraham that he didn't stop, that he didn't uh, get discouraged and give up. He didn't get disappointed, but he just kept going with you, Lord. He just kept believing your word. He kept taking, uh, putting action to his faith. And Father, you are the author and finisher. You were the author and finisher of his faith, and you're going to be the author and finisher of our faith if we'll just allow you to work in our lives. We thank you. We thank you for the privilege, Lord, of... Lord, we can be in partnership with you in these end days.